If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew 26 this morning. We want to look at verses 57 through 68. Jesus put on trial is what I've titled the message here this morning. Lord, we do thank you for your word now. Minister to our hearts as we study together. Help us to glean from the text the things you would have us to see. Help me to uh, teach it, uh, explain it, apply it in a way that's profitable for us as a people. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Note on the overhead, uh, the outline, the theme is Christ uh, the King. And we have worked our way down through chapters 26 and 27, which has as its theme the passion of the King. Well, the centerpiece of the history of the world is found in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, the whole of Old Testament history looked forward prophetically to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, our whole gospel is about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus according to and in fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Well, on this side of the cross, where we live, the whole of history looks back to the cross. The whole of the New Testament is really about further explanation, showing how Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies, explaining the significance of it, showing what he's doing right now in the world, in terms of building a forever family called the church, and showing that just as surely as he fulfilled all the first coming prophecies, just as surely he will also yet fulfill all the second coming prophecies. So right now in our study, we are in the thick of this centerpiece of human history, as we are right now in the immediate shadow of the cross. In our study, Christ has been arrested and is now put on trial, as we find in Matthew 26. We are now in the early hours of what will be crucifixion day. As Jesus was apprehended, the disciples fled, just as was prophesied in Zechariah 13, 7, and just as was predicted earlier in the evening by Christ in Matthew 26, 31. Well, this morning we pick up the narrative at Matthew 26 and verse 57. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. Now, there were two major aspects to the trials of Christ. There was a religious aspect and there was a civil aspect. Actually, there were six trials three religious, Jewish, and three civil, Gentile trials. So let me put it up on the overhead here. Uh, Note, uh, first of all, you got the three Jewish trials, the religious ones. First before Annas, which is not dealt with in Matthew, but it is in John. And then the second trial before Caiaphas. And then there was a third one before the Sanhedrin. Uh, And then uh, this is followed by three Gentile trials, first before Pilate for the first time, then Herod, and then for the last, the sixth trial uh, before Pilate, where he is finally given over to be crucified. So I say Matthew presents Christ as being brought before Caiaphas, the high priest, and the Supreme Court that was assembled with him. 
However, John's gospel brings out that before he was brought before Caiaphas, he was first brought to Annas. Now, Annas served as high priest from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15. His son-in-law, named Caiaphas, then succeeded him in the office of high priest. And Caiaphas served in that role from A.D. 18 to 36, overlapping with the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, Annas had been removed from Rome, uh, from that position of high priest, as Rome insisted on having the oversight of all things, including really what's going on with the Jews, even so far as to decide who's going to serve as high priest. And they felt Annas was getting too much power, had too much control, so they wanted to replace him kind of with a, a man that would do, you know, the bidding of Rome. And so they put Caiaphas uh, in, in that position instead. However, it appears that Annas, the father-in-law, was really still the, the power behind uh, the office of high priest. And that is why he was taken there first. Now, most probably, both Annas and Caiaphas were Sadducees. And as Sadducees, they were theological liberals who did not believe in the supernatural. And really, they, they were about power. Uh, they controlled the temple. They controlled the temple enterprise and all the funds that were being brought in uh, from, you know, the sellers and the buyers at the, at, the, at the temple. Now, twice Jesus had cleansed the temple during his ministry. And this was especially an affront to these religious leaders, the high priests. And so consequently, earlier, Caiaphas had already said Jesus had to go. He needed to be taken out for the good of the nation, as he saw it. Uh, we read in John chapter 11, one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you consider that, you can see his ego, right? He's the alpha male here, right, in the room. I mean, uh, you know nothing at all. You guys don't know anything. Listen to me. I, I am the expert here. I know, I know what's going on. Uh, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. So as he says, you know, uh, one needs to die. It's kind of ironic that as high priest, he's really saying spiritually what needed to happen in terms of one dying uh, for the people. But uh, he is thinking very carnally in terms of, uh, you know, his own uh, power position and saying, you know, it's expedient that one should die for the people and not that the whole nation... He's going to bring the whole nation down if we don't do something about this. We need to do away with this one guy so it doesn't affect... Otherwise, he's going to bring the whole nation down. So Caiaphas was the official acting high priest, according to Rome, and this is where Jesus was taken for his second trial. After the initial interrogation by Annas, as seen in John 18. Now, this trial happened in the middle of the night, which, according to their own rules, was supposed to be illegal. You know, but when you're in charge and you have an agenda, it really doesn't care. Uh, they don't really care about justice, and uh, everything is uh, permissible. Uh, and this is, by the way, how the, how the corrupt world operates, as we see so often. Uh, this was clearly a rush to judgment, if there ever was one. Verse 58, but Peter followed him at a distance. So Jesus is taken before Caiaphas, and, and Peter's following at a distance. 
to the high priest's courtyard. And he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Uh, How's this going to turn out? What's going to happen now? Uh, In verse 58, we have a footnote that becomes important as the narrative goes along. Uh, We find in John chapter 18 that John knew the high priest personally. And because of that relationship, he was able to get access into the high priest's courtyard and was able to get Peter in as well. It's who you know, right? Uh, interestingly enough, uh, you know, John knew the high priest. Well, at this, from this point, he followed from a distance to see uh, what the end would be. Here he is huddled together with the high priest's servants in the courtyard, in the very courtyard of the high priest. Kind of a, a privileged perch position here. Verse 59, now the chief priests and the elders and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Uh, They all knew the goal. Uh, He's got to die. Caiaphas has already spoken this earlier. He's got to die. And we saw in verse 57 that the scribes and elders were here. Now, Now we see the chief priests and all the council were also there along with Caiaphas the high priest who was presiding over this trial in the middle of the night. Now, when it says all the council, that is referring to the Sanhedrin, which was the Supreme Court in Israel, made up of an assortment of 71 members. Uh, So you had an odd number to to break if there was a vote that was a tie. 71 would would break the tie. Uh, These were uh, the main religious movers and shakers uh, in all the land. Now, this need not mean that every last one of the 71 were present. We don't think they were. It need, uh, what is meant is they only needed to have 23 present for a a quorum. So there was at least 23 there. But note very clearly that they have an evil agenda as they sought false testimony against Jesus they, were, they weren't seeking true testimony. They're seeking false testimony. This was anything but a fair trial. They had already determined guilt. And uh, so they're going through the motions uh, to try and look like a legitimate trial to Rome. And we've got to present some credible uh, charges to Rome if we're going to have Rome kill him, put him on a cross. Uh, Rome's got to buy the charges. It was a complete scam. After all, it was this very same group that had been plotting to kill Jesus, as we noted back in verse 4 in this chapter. It was this same group, uh, from this same group, that the chief priest paid off Judas to secure the arrest of Jesus. You see, these judges had already determined the verdict. Now they're just trying to find the proper charges. Seems a little backwards, doesn't it? We know guilty is the verdict. We just need the charges that will now, you know, validate the verdict. They already got the verdict. The verdict doesn't come ahead of of the charges. First you have the charges, and then you consider the evidence, and then you arrive at a verdict. Oh, no, 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 they had the verdict already guilty. Now they just need to find the charges that will substantiate it. They were desperately trying to find some witnesses who could corroborate some false testimony that would stick as damning evidence that he was worthy of death. Not so easy to do 
if you have a perfectly innocent man. But they were trying. They were actively seeking out false witnesses to try and make it happen. Now, the Jews prided themselves on a legal system that was superior to all the other nations of the world in terms of fairness and justice. As it was, you see, grounded in the inspired word of God. The essence of that jurisprudence system is laid out in Deuteronomy 16. Notice what we find there. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. You shall follow what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Above all, they were to judge according to what is right and just. It was to be completely fair and impartial. So solid was this system that much of the modern Western world has modeled its justice system on these Judeo ethics, which has stood strong for hundreds of years, but by the way, is now being threatened by ethical insanity on the part of corrupt judges and ungodly leaders in keeping with last day's madness. That, my friends, is where we are. Contrary to the ethics of Jewish law, rooted in the inspired scriptures, this was a totally unethical mock trial that was totally out to get Jesus at any cost, no matter what the evidence really was. Note these inconsistencies involved. According to Jewish law, criminal cases could not be tried during the Passover season. According to Jewish law, only an acquittal could be issued on the day of the trial. Guilty verdicts had to wait one night to allow for feelings of mercy to rise. According to Jewish law, all evidence had to be guaranteed by two witnesses who were separately examined and could not have any contact with each other. According to Jewish law, false witness was punishable by death. Nothing was done to the many false witnesses in Jesus' trial. According to Jewish law, a trial always began by bringing forth evidence for the innocence of the accused before the evidence of guilt was offered. This was not the practice here. Again, this trial was a total sham from the very beginning, nighttime trials were illegal, so they had to convene again early in the morning so as to ratify and make official what they had already determined in the middle of the night. We read in Luke chapter 22, as soon as it was day, I mean, remember this is all happening at night, it's not really right to do it in the night, so we got to wait for the day to make it official. As soon as it was day, the elders, the people, both chief priests, scribes, came together and led him into their council to ratify it. So in the middle of the night, they were trying hard to find false witnesses that could agree on something 
that would stand the serious charges against Jesus. In the morning then, they officially ratified it. But note, there's a little problem, verse 60, but found none. That's a problem. It's a problem when you've already got the verdict. But found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. Double emphasis. Found none. They had all kinds of false witnesses. They were lined up. I've got a guy over here. I've got a guy over here. How about this guy over here? Yeah, yeah he's, he's our buddy. He'll... They were all very inconsistent, and they didn't agree with each other, which is typical in the case with liars, by the way. Uh, we read in Mark chapter 14, verse 56, For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. I mean, they just didn't jive. Okay, well, you're saying this. Well, but you say All over the place. Now, that's a problem. That's a problem, especially in a case where the death penalty is being sought. You see, the Old Testament was very clear that in the case of a death penalty, there had to be at least two witnesses that were in total agreement. We read in Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. There's the problem. We don't have two witnesses that are in agreement here. Their inability to find two corroborating witnesses speaks powerfully to the life of integrity of Jesus. I mean, if you want to find dirt on somebody, anybody, you can find it as politics makes plain. But Jesus lived a life of perfection to the point he could say to his enemies, which of you convicts me of sin? John 8, 46. I mean, who else could say this? Especially in relation to your enemies. I mean, could you say this? Who of you convicts me? I have a feeling if you really want to nail Pastor Dwight, it would not take too long. Probably by the time we get out of here, we could get our stones out. Only Jesus could say this. And by the way, we find this emphasis all over the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Hebrews 4.15, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. 1 John 3, 5. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him, there is no sin. These Jews knew Jesus was innocent. And their difficulty in finding any false witnesses uh, to move their evil agenda forward really proved it. Ed Glasscock says, Amazingly, these religious Jews who meditated, prayed, memorized scripture, fasted, and preached righteousness, were able to block out statements in scriptures such as Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, which emphasizes that God hates a lying tongue, a heart that devises wicked plans, and a false witness who utters lies. I mean, they trampled all over this. But the end of verse 60 continues, but at last... Two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, 
You're going back three years. This happened early in Jesus' ministry. This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Finally, they seemingly had two false witnesses come forward who seemed to have something on Jesus that might stick. Now, of course, they were false witnesses who misquoted and misapplied what Jesus actually said. Now, you understand this was a serious charge because it was considered the height of sacrilege to speak against the temple in any manner. I mean, the holy temple. When false witnesses charged Stephen of speaking blasphemous words against the temple, the end result was that they stoned him. As seen in Acts 6 and 7. When the enemies of Paul charged him with bringing Gentiles into the temple, the whole city of Jerusalem went crazy. And they tried to kill him, as seen in Acts 21. He was saved only by the Roman soldiers coming to his rescue. Actually, here's what happened early in Jesus' ministry, as recorded in John chapter 2. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Note, Jesus did not say he would destroy the temple, but speaking to the Jews, he told them, If they destroyed the temple, he would raise it in three days. There's a difference between saying, I will destroy it, and saying, if you. Furthermore, he was not talking about the Jewish temple, but rather about the temple of his body. At this point, Jesus did not even bother to clarify what he was saying, because in truth, this crowd wasn't even listening to truth at all. In truth, they were about to destroy the temple of his body, and then the greatest sign of all would be demonstrated in Christ raising himself up from the dead on the third day. But even these two did really not totally agree in what they were saying. Mark brings this out very clearly. Mark chapter 14. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. So even, even there, there, there were details that were not quite in sync here. Verse 62. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. The high priest at this point tried to bully Jesus in effect to incriminating himself, to try to force him to speak. But he remained silent, and this seemed to frustrate the high priest. David Gazik says, Jesus could have mounted a magnificent defense here, calling forth all the various witnesses to his deity, power and character, the people he taught, the people he healed, the dead risen, the blind who see, etc. Jesus very easily could have refuted the false charges, clearly explaining what he had meant three years earlier, as seen in John chapter 2. In fact, he, you know what he could have said? He could have said, you know, you're about to put me on a cross, and three days later you're going to go to the tomb, and you know what you're going to find? It's going to be empty! I mean, he could have said those kind of things. He didn't. He didn't. 
He chose to remain silent and not defend himself in what is called a dignified silence. There's a time to speak and there's a time to not speak. This was the silence of dignity, the silence of innocence, the silence of integrity, the silence of trust in his heavenly Father, the trust that God's plan was being fulfilled. It was the silence of fulfilled prophecy. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. The verse continues, verse 63. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God, who just happened to be sitting before him. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, the high priest at this point sought to force Christ into speaking with the goal of having him incriminate himself. And this seemed to be a very clever ploy. You see, Caiaphas knew full well that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, as seen in John chapter 10. And he knew full well that the law of Moses demanded that if someone was put under oath, they had to answer. You couldn't have ate and say, well, I'm taking the fifth. No, there was no fifth here. Uh, you had to answer. Leviticus chapter 5, verse 1. When someone sins in any of these ways, if he has seen, heard, or known about something he has witnessed and did not respond to a public call to testify, he is responsible for his sin. You can't just say, well, I don't want to answer that question. No, you have to answer. The high priest seemingly sought to be clever in two ways. You see, if Jesus testified to being the Christ, he would be in trouble with Rome because the idea of the Christ was to be a king. And so if he said he was the Christ, he'd be in trouble with Rome that considered any other claim to be king as a threat to Caesar and worthy of death. If he claimed to be the Son of God, that would be considered blasphemy by the Jews and worthy of death. So either way, an admission to either being the Christ or the Son of God would evoke a charge that called for the death penalty. Pretty brilliant question, huh? I mean, from his perspective. So one claim would result in the capital crime of a traitor to Rome, and the other claim would result in the capital crime of blasphemy. Now, I have a feeling that this high priest had been working on this gotcha question for a while. And I think he was really, that's a pretty good question. We're going to get him. Yeah, I got him. Let me, he's, he's throwing this out, you know. Tried to let it go another way. Couldn't find any false witnesses. We're really saying, I got a gotcha question. Now, give the high priest credit. And we don't want to give him much. But give him credit that this was the all-important issue. I mean, I give him credit there. In Matthew 16, Jesus asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they said, well, you're one of the prophets. They think you're one of the prophets. And Jesus said, but who do you say I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus then said he would build his church on this rock truth. 
John said that he wrote the entire gospel of John, the gospel belief, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the believing you may have life in his name. So this question about Jesus being the Christ, the Son of God, really is the ultimate issue. And Jesus sees the moment. In front of all these religious big shots, he sees the moment to boldly, once and for all, seal his testimony with absolute clarity. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, by the way, uh, when he says, uh, it is as you, singular, said, then nevertheless I say to you, plural, all of you big shot council members, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus in effect said to him, you got it. More literally, in the affirmative, he said, you have said it. The Gospel of Mark says it even more clearly with Jesus' response simply being, I am. Mark 16, uh, 14, 62, Jesus said, I am. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven. And then to drive the point home with absolute dogmatism, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, if there was ever any doubt about Jesus' claim to be the Christ, this ended all doubt with emphatic certainty. Jesus pointed to the hereafter. Son of Man is a clear messianic designation going back to Daniel chapter 7. Where, and here, as Jesus quoted this, uh, he in essence quoted and applied it to himself. Every educated Jew knew this was a key messianic text. We often refer to it ourselves. Daniel 7, 7 verses 13 and 14. I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man. Favorite title for Jesus. Many, many times. I think about 70 times in the Gospels used. Uh, always used by Jesus himself. One like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations' languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, the one which will not be destroyed. Jesus is saying, I'm that guy. I'm that person. And Jesus in saying, you will see, was in effect saying, you haven't seen the last of me. And when you see me in the hereafter, you will see me in the position of power and glory, coming to set up an everlasting kingdom in which all will be submissive to me. The roles will then be reversed. Jesus will then be judge with everyone in submission to him. And these who were now sitting in judgment of him will be in big trouble. 
Deuteronomy 7, verse 10. You really want to don't, you don't want to be in this verse. And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. This warning from Christ is similar to when Jesus, in a last word of gracious warning, said to Judas, Friend, why have you come? Now in a final warning in effect to these religious leaders who were in the position of being his judges, he gives this final warning regarding the hereafter. David Gazik says, Jesus added this one word of warning. He warned them that though they sat in judgment of him right now, he would one day sit in judgment of them with a far more binding judgment. William MacDonald says, in essence, he was saying, I am the son of God, as you have said. My glory is presently veiled in a human body. I appear to be just another man. You see me in the days of my humiliation. But the day is coming when you will see me as the glorified one, equal in all respects with God, sitting at his right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. In addition to this, he was saying that he would be seated at the right hand of power. Jesus was clearly saying that he would be on the right hand of God, which is in the position of the Messiah, as prophesied in that that key messianic psalm of Psalm 110. Notice what Psalm 110, verse 1 says. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. These were the two most famous and prominent messianic texts. In all the Old Testament, certainly right at the top. And for Jesus to now apply them to himself, along with affirming that he is the Son of God, made it clear that he was claiming to be the divine human Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. Now, earlier in Jesus' ministry, the Jews had clearly gotten the point that Jesus, in claiming to be the Son of God, was making himself equal with God, the Father. John chapter 5, verse 18. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him. They wanted to kill him. I mean, they were wanting to kill him all along here. And they sought to kill him. Why? Because he not only broke the Sabbath, which, I mean, that's worthy of death right there, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. That's how they took it. When he says, God is my father, I am the son of God, they understood that as a claim to equality with God. Later on this very day, the Jews would tell Pilate that the reason they were seeking his death was because Jesus claimed to be the son of God. John chapter 19, verse 7, the Jews answered him, they're telling Pilate, we have a law, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die. Why? Because he made himself the son of God. (laughs) He's got to die for this blasphemy. Now the response of the high priest serves to show that he clearly understood that Jesus was claiming to be God because he emphatically says this is blasphemy in the strongest of terms. John Phillips says, Caiaphas did not see the deity of Christ then, but he will see it in a coming day. 
Caiaphas had a foretaste of things to come when a few days later the terrified guard came rushing in from the open tomb with tidings of a resurrection. The high priest had a further foretaste when along with his guilty colleagues, he was confronted by a group of the apostles. They were filling Jerusalem with the tidings of a risen Christ and resolutely resisted all attempts to bully and beat them into silence. You'll see, said Jesus, and indeed they will. We all have a date with destiny in which all will see Jesus in his resurrection glory as the one who will have absolute eternal kingdom dominion over all. And what a day that will be. Verse 65. Then the high priest tore his clothes saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look now, you have heard his blasphemy. The high priest clearly grasped the gravity of what Christ was saying. The only problem was he didn't believe it. When faced with the claims of Christ, one has a choice. Is the person going to accept what Christ is saying or are they going to reject it? Clearly the high priest totally rejected Christ's claim to be the divine human Messiah and called it blasphemy. William MacDonald, the high priest's reaction proves that he understood Jesus was claiming equality with God. Now when Jesus claimed to be the eternal I am in John 8, it evoked a similar response in that the Jews took up stones to stone him because they considered it to be blasphemy. The tearing of the clothes signified horror, indignation, grief, and outrage. This act itself was unlawful for the high priest to do if he was indeed wearing his, his uh, high priestly vestments. In Luke, uh, Luke, Leviticus uh, chapter 21, verse 10, it says, He who is the high priest among his brethren, on whose head the anointing oil was poured, and who is consecrated to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head, nor tear his clothes. He was not to tear his clothes. The penalty for blasphemy was considered a capital offense to be punished by death. Here's what they were looking at. Leviticus 24, 16. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with the stranger as, as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. Requires a death penalty. To claim to be equal with God would be the height of blasphemy. Irreverent speech that defames the very person of God. Except in the case of Jesus, it happened to be true. He is the eternal I am. He truly is the Son of God. And this is what they missed. Veiled in humble humanity, they could not see the truth of who he was as God. And then he says to his peers, his uh, you know, fellow Supreme Court judges, verse 66, what do you think? They answered and said, he is deserving of death. In saying, what do you think? The high priest was really calling for a verdict. A verdict of guilt for blasphemy, which called for the death penalty. And the quorum of the Sanhedrin, in consensus it would appear, certainly a strong majority, uh, answered, he is deserving of death. Thus, they were in agreement that he should die. Now, no one defended Jesus. 
No one brought up that his claims were backed up with Scripture, as seen in the fulfillment of the prophetic Scriptures. No one pointed out his messianic kingdom miracles or that he uniquely did what no one else had ever done, all in perfect accord with Scripture. This is what they missed. They claimed to be experts in the Scriptures, but they missed the plain truth of it. Jesus said in John 5, If you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You see, the problem is they really didn't believe the scriptures. Verse 67. Then they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands. Saying, prophesy to us, Christ. Who is the one who struck you? Now to the Jews... The supreme insult was to spit in someone's face or to have someone spit in your face. And this too was a fulfillment. This is all in fulfillment of prophecy written 700 years before by Isaiah. Isaiah 50 verse 6, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Charles Spurgeon suggested some ways that men still, in effect, spit in the face of Jesus today. Men spit in his face by denying his deity, that he is God. Men spit in his face by rejecting his gospel. Men spit in his face by preferring their own righteousness. Men spit in his face by turning away from Jesus. Bible Knowledge Commentary, contrary to all Jewish and Roman law, they took it on themselves to begin to punish the accused. And all that without even a legal trial at this point. The whole thing, again, was a total sham, a total mockery of true justice. And this was done by, you understand, by the dignified Supreme Court in Israel. They simply hated Jesus and wanted to do away with him no matter what. Hatred expresses depravity like no other. In Acts 5.30, after the resurrection, you know, Peter that kind of, he meant well, but was cowardly and denied Christ. We'll get to that, Lord willing, next week. But uh, after the resurrection, Peter and the other apostles flat out told this high priest and the Sanhedrin that God raised up, quote, Jesus whom you murdered. (laughs) I mean, that was blunt. Acts 5.30. Blunt but undeniable truth. Ed Glasscock says, The hatred being expressed by this treatment was senseless if one was truly looking for justice. This was revenge for the times he had outwitted them in public, called them hypocrites, snakes, and whited sepulchers. Yeah, (laughs) they hate him. Both Mark 14.65 and Luke 24.64 say they blindfolded him and then struck him saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? Surely if he was truly the Messiah, he would know who it was that struck him. So they thought and said in mockery. After all, according to Isaiah 11 verse 3, it says the Messiah shall not judged by the sight of his eyes. He'll just know. Little did they realize he knew full well 
And that all this was being allowed to happen in perfect fulfillment of the prophetic scriptures. Little did they realize that his enduring these indignities, in fact, proved that he was Yahweh's servant, as seen in the servant songs of Isaiah 50 and 53. Someone has said, when one reads this, one wonders if the greatest miracle of all was not his patient suffering and abuse as the spotless, sinless one. God's grace is truly amazing. His patience with sinners is truly amazing. His mercy is truly amazing. How often we say, and maybe you've said it, and maybe I've said it, how long can God put up with what's going on in the world? I mean, how could Jesus put up with this? A few angels, please, wipe them out. I could hear me saying that, not Jesus. We hear things like, if God doesn't soon judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. You heard that? Certainly judgment day is coming, as the Bible says. But in the meantime, 2 Peter 3, 9 indicates God is patient, still waiting for more to come to repentance. God is a very patient God. The things he puts up with. And we don't have to look any further than me. I don't agree with Martin Luther's baptismal regeneration, but he is quotable, as I often say. And he once said, If I were as our Lord God and had committed the government to my son as he to his son, and these vile people were as disobedient as they now be, I would knock the world in pieces. You know, from a human perspective, I get that. But God is so much more gracious than we can even begin to imagine. And we need look no further than ourselves. The Supreme Court in Israel, led by the high priest, put the depravity of man on full display. And Jesus, the Son of God, put the graciousness of God on display. John Phillips says, The events that culminated at Calvary show how far man will go in expressing his hatred for God and how far God will go in expressing his love for man. What a beautiful person is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our perfect example. Have you ever been abused? Have you ever been falsely accused and slandered? Jesus knows all about it. As our high priest, he can sympathize with whatever we're going through. Just remember, the very name devil means slanderer. He never fights fair. But also remember, God will have the last word. There's a place, I believe, for imprecatory praying. So long as we do so with the right spirit that gives it over to God and does not seek personal vengeance, but rather gives it over to God because vengeance belongs to him. This is the great example of Christ, by the way. He gave it over to the Father. We read in 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. 
committed himself to God, put himself in God the Father's hands, who, bore, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. The inhumane treatment experienced by Christ was foreseen, foretold, and allowed by God for the larger purpose of providing salvation for God-haters. If they will but repent and put their faith in Him as Lord and Savior. You do remember that Christ died for the ungodly, according to Romans 4, 5. Every person faced with the truth of Christ faces a choice. Will they accept him on his terms or will they reject him? Every person who rejects Christ in effect spits in his face and is guilty of blasphemy against God, who sent his only begotten son to be the savior of all who will believe on him. The irony of ironies is that all who misjudge Jesus will ultimately be judged by him. Those who spit in his face will one day see him in all of his glory on the right hand of all power. People continually misjudge Jesus, but he never misjudges us. Well, let me ask you, what's your judgment call on Jesus? But even more importantly, what will Christ's judgment call be on you? It all depends on what you do with him in the here and now. 1 John 5, 12 says, He who has the Son has life. But he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. You either have Jesus or you don't have him. And how do you have him? Well, John three eighteen, He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. And why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close us in prayer.